The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. The tragedy of uh, Istanbul and Ataturk Airport. 41 dead as we speak, 239 injured. And people very often forget in these kind of atrocities that very often the people who are injured are so catastrophically damaged that for the rest of their lives they're very often unable to function. Well, lecturer in Middle East politics at University College Dublin is Vincent Durack, and he joins me in the studio. Vincent, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Now, it's interesting, just before we get to the thing itself, Ataturk Airport, Ataturk was the sort of father of modern Turkey, wasn't that right? Absolutely, and he's the you know the classic secular modernizing figure in the the history of modern Turkey. And yeah, indeed so in the Turkey prides itself on being essentially a secular rather than a Muslim nation. Over the decades since its independence, in the emergence, in fact, as an independent state in the nineteen twenties, until very recently, and of course, what we've seen since the year two thousand or the early two thousands is the emergence of a very strong Islamist current. But nonetheless, I think. For very many Turks, the the notion that it is a secular, modern and European country is very close to their their sense of self-image. Now, first of all, what what is it? Because uh, Istanbul, previously Constantinople, uh, there was this idea that that Constantinople was the gateway to to Asia and all that sort of stuff. Is Turkey a European country because it has aspirations to join the EU or is it something else? I think the simple reality is that it is both and neither to some extent. I mean, it is clearly it's the, the, the quintessential gateway between uh, Europe and Asia. There is a small uh, part of Tur- of Istanbul itself that's in the European heartland. The rest is, of course, across the water, um, strictly speaking, in Asia. Um, in terms of how the country sees itself, I think it's interesting that for very many years it was the Islamist uh, party uh, that's currently in government that most strongly projected an ambition for the country to join the European Union and most clearly embraced the notion of Turkey as a European country. And there were uh, all sorts of reasons for that. Some of them, uh, in a sense, self-protection. They felt that they would be immune to the onslaught that they had suffered from successive secular governments if Turkey signed up to the fundamental rights and freedoms of the the EU. Now, the thing, though, about this is if Europe because we still haven't got to the atrocity but but yeah we have to find out why it might happen um, if Turkey had come uh, joined Europe and it may well do but if it joins Europe it brings with it the largest population of Muslims in the EU isn't that right? Without a shadow of a doubt it's a very very big country and it's overwhelmingly Muslim but that is such a long way away I mean the Turkish gripe with the European Union is that since the early 1960s, the EU could not, or its predecessor European community, could not even agree a date on the basis of which, or at which it would begin negotiations about whether or not yeah. Turkey but, could become a candidate country. So the, this is a preliminary to a pre- preliminary to a set of negotiations. It is so far down the road. All right, but the bribery that has taken place in the recent past, in which they've attempted to make Greece and Turkey dustbins for for a dispossessed millions of dispossessed people by bribing them by saying we'll give you money and we'll give you a special deal about your citizens coming into Europe and so on. We now come to the atrocity, okay? Perpetrated, presumably, there's no doubt by ISIS, is it? There's very little doubt. I think there are some mutterings that this this is not crystal clear. Um, the alternative, likely alternative, um, would be uh, Kurdish militants, but their targets in the recent past, and they have resumed quite militant and violent activities, as we all know, but their targets have been the very obvious, the security forces, the, yeah. the military, the police. They well, don't tend okay. to go for unprovoked uh, attacks on civilians. Well, what is ISIS doing? Three suicide bombers. Mm. What is ISIS doing 
in a Muslim country with a Muslim government. What's it trying to achieve now? This seems confusing to most it, of us. It is confusing and it's confusing uh, for a couple of reasons. I think the most obvious um, reason it may be confusing is that for a long time there's been a justifiable theme in much of the commentary on Turkey under Erdogan since the Syrian uprising that Turkey has been sympathetic to ISIS and there is without a shadow of a doubt there is a great deal of substance to this. There is? There is. Uh, in wow. in okay. the early years um, and we're only talking about a couple of years since the declaration of the caliphate the second anniversary being today of course um, but the the notion that uh, Erdogan turned a blind eye to ISIS activities Erdogan being the Prime Minister being the, of Turkey. the uh, uh, President of Turkey President now Turkey, yeah. um, formerly Prime Minister um, that he turned a blind eye because my enemy's enemy is my friend and because they shared the, the view that uh, Assad should be overthrown in Syria um, but in the last 12 months, since around this time last year, there has been a significant sea change uh, in Turkey and at the heart of the regime. And you see, for instance, uh, the Turkish Air Force taking part in airstrikes against ISIS targets in a way that the Russians simply aren't. You see uh, air bases being made available to the Americans, things that they would not have done a year earlier. So and ISIS is unhappy, therefore. Is that so ISIS, read of it? ISIS is unhappy with this. Um, but ISIS is also uh, in something of crisis, maybe to overstate it, though some would say that, um, in its heartland, in the territories it controls in Iraq and in Syria. It is very significantly under challenge, especially in Iraq at the moment. Now, where this goes in terms... Like Fallujah, for instance. Fallujah, Ramadi. Yeah. Uh, it has lost uh, territory with a population of perhaps 600,000 people um, formerly under its control. And let's not forget that it earns its income partly by taxing in a very rudimentary fashion, in a, a sort yeah. of medieval European fashion, um, by levying on the population under its control. And as Turkey, for instance, has closed down on uh, smuggling in oil, oil-related revenues have reduced and the balance uh, the proportion that ISIS relies upon from ta taxation has shot up very significantly. So losing population, losing control over population in the heartland is important, okay. is very significant. What that leads to then, if this is a directly sponsored rather than uh, you know, one of these lone wolf type, type attacks and the fact that it's three um, redolent of other IS attacks makes that plausible, um, suggests that we're going to see these sorts of strikes for propaganda value. In Turkey, we, we in Turkey and elsewhere. We haven't, well, we haven't gone away. We're not beaten. All right. My guest is Vincent Durack, lecturer in, in Middle East Studies at University College. Now, now you worry me, though, when you say elsewhere. Well, I mean, it's simply a, a fact of the matter, whether we like it or not, that we live in these uncertain times where uh, there is this entity with its ideology, which is attractive in all sorts of ways to all sorts of individuals. Um, and for as long as ISIS looks like a convincing version of uh, an Islamic state of uh, a possible future for people who feel disenfranchised, I'm not going to try to rationalise their motives, um, okay. then we've got the, the ever-present possibility. It is statistically insignificant, but it's very real when it happens. But, but Europe is, like, there is a European border with Turkey. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, just across the border, there's an enormous uh, endemic uh, Muslim population. It, it, then you have massive overcrowding and presumably massive poverty from the dispossessed across the Middle East. Syria, Iraq, and so on, in Turkey. Um, the idea that you could in any way control that to find out who is a bomber and who is dispossessed is well nigh impossible. So so ISIS really could do what the hell it likes in Turkey if it wanted to do it. I think that may somewhat be the case, but it's simply always the case with population movement. You can't identify what's going on in people's minds. And... It seems to me anyway a little unfair to uh, classify the people who are running away from violence and running away from IS. Of course there are these persistent rumours that IS has infiltrated. I wouldn't dream of of, of, I, I, of, of attempting to in any way, uh, you know, uh, put a blanket decision on these people. But, but it, it makes common sense that ISIS would infiltrate the movement. And so we've been hearing, I, and I, I accept that fully, but... 
there's still remarkably little evidence of it bar one passport which may or may not be yeah, enforced okay. that was left at the and Vatican. And why do you think that is? I mean, when they can they can go down to Turkey airport, they can they can treat suicide bombers and there's no defence against suicide bombers. Um, they only have to cross the border to do it somewhere else. Absolutely. And yeah. that hasn't happened yet. Why? Do you have any read on that or even personal opinion? When you say cross the border, well, they like they, they're, they're the same people who want to do that could presumably get across the border into the European Union reasonably easy, and they don't do it. But we've seen attacks in the European Union, and I, I think we're as defenseless to some extent when you see soft targets like airports, and it's instructive here. And this has happened in a couple of other places. There have been similar attacks on airports. Uh, the Turkish airport security begins at the entrance to the terminal and that's where this attack takes place. So at a certain point, regardless of the precautions you take, you simply displace the location of the potential threat. Of course, it's better that it's not taking yeah. place on a plane. It's, of course, it's better that it's right. not. But then if we want to fix it, and this surely everybody, to be honest, I suspect is in agreement. The problem is in Iraq and Syria, but we're not fixing the problem in Iraq and Syria. Do you believe that this goes all the way back to Cheney and Bush? I think in significant part it does, and I agree with you absolutely. Of course, taking effective measures insofar as we can, and I think there are limits to that, to deal with the immediate terrorism threat is hugely important. It's important for everyone's security and peace of mind, even if we overstate the scale of the problem all the time. But the real issue is that these attacks, everything that we've seen in relation to IS, um, is symptomatic of a problem that lies in the region. And in the case of Iraq, at the very least, it is specifically a post-invasion problem. It is a function of the, uh, the, the, the ways in which the Iraqi state was ripped apart and then put back together but again. But we knew that. Nestanchi, I remember George Bombio writes for The Guardian. I remember George talking to me at that time and saying, you know, uh, what we are going to create is... Uh, 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 a resistance and a hatred for America and thus the West forever. We knew it at the time, George. I gave a, a talk in the spring of 2003 before the attack and one of the points that was crystal clear, I made it, it wasn't original, was that there was no radical Islamist threat within Iraq at the time. There was no Al-Qaeda because Saddam simply wouldn't tolerate it. But that if you went in and took the state apart, you would create the conditions for something like Al-Qaeda to, to right. emerge. And this is what we've seen. But there is a view now that we, we we should support Assad. We don't like him, but, you know, or he's our guy, which is the great CIA theory. Um, so therefore, we probably should have stuck with Saddam. We shouldn't have invaded in the first place. And yeah. this is the problem. The problem consistently is occupation. And one of the classic links between political violence or causes of political violence is occupation. We see it throughout history. We may not like the form in which it takes and we certainly don't like the threat that it poses to us. Um, so it's a combination of domestic factors and the mishandling of the issues, the ways in which we've engaged with Iraq quite catastrophically by invading and the ways in which Syria has been handled since the uprising. And the fact that Assad, for instance, uh, succeeded in targeting the most benign and moderate opposition and he himself very deliberately created this monster that is ISIS, which continues to be the strategy of Assad and the Russians, which leads a lot of people, and I can understand it fully, to say, well, this is what we've got. He's the alternative to these guys. But we're not going to fix this in any short time. We're not going to fix it in any short time. This is going to take years and years and years. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. The lecturer in Middle East Studies uh, at uh, University College Dublin, Vincent Durack. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, if you've just turned on the old wireless, it's uh, the right hook with George Hook. And I'm joined by News Talk's political editor, Shane Coleman, with, um, I think, a very disappointing story, really, about a charity, Console, which has such an important job, doesn't it? What's its job? What's it uh, raise on that, 
Console is effectively there to it's it's the national suicide charity. It's basically yeah. Well, that's how they describe themselves. Okay. Um, it was established in two thousand and two by Paul Kelly. Um, according to the website, after he experienced the grief of losing a lost one uh, by suicide, and it's there to sub provide support it's got a helpline uh, an out of hours emergency line and 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 offers various counseling services and gets a ton of money from the HSE it gets um about half a million a year from the HSE up until 2012 it was getting about a quarter of a million a year and then they took on this uh, they took over a helpline and the the funding doubled to 500 grand a year uh, and that's maybe a little less than half of the money they raise uh, uh, that, that they have their they raise another half a million like as at, at a charity yeah at least that All right. um, so at least good that. Uh, good people give them donations yeah and so, and, so I mean, what happened to the money well what has come out in um the, the RT investigation, the, the primetime investigation and also in the HSE audit is is pretty shocking. Now we should say at the outset Paul Kelly has said that no wrongdoing uh, occurred but some of the figures in this are going to be very difficult uh, to to explain away. Uh, I'll just give you a flavour of some of the things that have come out in the HSE audit. Now interestingly that audit, George, an audit of a charity, they're a pretty small charity in terms of income. An audit like this should take about six weeks. The audit, my understanding is, has taken a year to do. Now, the reason it has taken a year to do, again, my understanding is, well, it's complicated and I think it was fought tooth and nail. Um, there, there was a reluctance to, to hand over uh, certain types of, of, of information. They would have come under the radar when they got bigger. They would have suddenly come onto the radar of the HSE and that's when they started looking under the bonnet. And what look, what they found, things like €500,000 um, being spent on the likes of foreign trips, uh, groceries, designer clothes, other expenses. By the family by, who were directors. By Paul Kelly, Patricia Kelly, uh, his wife and his son, Tim Kelly. Credit cards used for large cash with, with reductions. There was 20 company credit cards, 11 of them held by the Kellys. Now, between wait till you hear this between 2012 and 2014 they withdrew 400 sorry they spent 464,000 euros um, on uh, using those cards Paul Kelly withdrew 66,000 euros in cash on those credit cards he and his wife made a total of 428 cash withdrawals now I work out that's withdrawing an average of 195 euros every two and a half days on the company credit cards withdrawal in cash um, there was 500,000 to the three of them in salaries and in cars over that period sorry consultancy payments I'm not sure if that includes the salary that Paul Kelly would have been getting as well he was driving a Mercedes uh, 30,000 euro worth 30,000 euro she was driving an Audi QS worth 57,000 euro all fully expensed as well uh, Patricia Kelly was getting a salary payment of 67,149 uh, um, Paul Kelly got consultancy payments of two hundred and eighty thousand. Now the issue this about this is, first of all, it's a charity. Yeah, can right? I give you just yeah. just can I give you a couple of more of these figures? Just George, right. thirty-two thousand nine hundred spent on credit cards in restaurants, uh, three quarters of which by the Kellys. Now that's an average of one hundred and sixty euros a week in in restaurants. Uh, Twenty nearly twenty-five grand on groceries. Again, the majority of these by by uh, Paul Kelly, Patricia Kelly. €8,377 on designer and other clothing, €1,340 on dental bills for Paul Kelly, over two grand on World Cup tickets. Now, they said that was to... um, Promote. For raffle, uh, but they weren't able to produce produce any documentation for that. Uh, One last figure, €32,000. I mean, I had to check this a couple of times and I still can't believe it's true. €32,000 for Patricia Kelly's mobile phone bill. In those three years. Now, I don't even know how you can run up a mobile phone bill of €32,000. Well, let's look at this, first of all. Um, This is a charity which gets the taxpayers' money from the HSE and gets what will be described as the widow's might. You can be absolutely sure that there are many people who might not have a lot of money but have been 
touched in some way by suicide in their family, and they gave this money to this charity. That's the first thing. So therefore, the Kellys had a huge fiduciary responsibility to the nation. And they, by by founding it, because he he was touched by suicide, obviously people were equally moved by that. Uh, this is extraordinary in the sense that they they actually used the charity as a personal bank account. They just it just used the charity's money as a personal bank account. Now, what really is interesting here, I think, is the audit is one thing, right? But the revenue will be all over this because as soon as the fellow in the revenue office hears about cash taken out of an ATM like yeah. he's a, like he immediately just says well if you we know this if you take 10 pounds out of the ATM it's really 20 because we want our cut yeah there's if also you, things like benefit in kind for on a motor car groceries if for clothes designer clothes there will be benefit a kind motor there. car is huge if it, she has a 57,000 motor car let's say that's 60 uh, you would have to assume I, I think we. I, th- I would say you have to assume that on the motor cars, that the benefit in kind was paid. I mean, I think that is pretty standard. There are question marks. And no, that works out at in the sixty thousand motor car, the benefit in kind is about ten thousand a year. Yeah. No evidence, though, apparently, that benefit in kind, for example, was paid on the eight thousand three hundred and seventy-seven spent on designer clo- uh, designer clothing. No evidence of that. There's also the tax exemption status of the charity itself. That is. They got you get that if you're a charity, but it's based on pretty strict rules. For example, no payment of salaries to directors. That's clearly breached in this case. Um, that the board of directors is independent. Um, I think we, one thing we can say with uh, without fear of being contradicted, this board of indep- of directors was not independent. It was essentially made up of members of the Kelly family. There but, are big, big questions. I mean, corporate governments. I mean, you look, I mean, there's been various scandals in the charity sector. I mean, everyone remembers CRC. There actually wasn't a problem with corporate governance in CRC. That was just an issue of um, very high payments to the chief executive and people were understandably outraged about this. There is no corporate governance, it would seem, in in console. It is absolutely and utterly absent. But how do you, but I have to say that they had to think that the quality of oversight of the charity by the HSE or whatever was so bad that they could do what they liked. Because, I mean, you know, we, I've run a business like I I, I, I have my own uh, income and so on. And I know that there are rules and regulations that I have to conform yeah. to in relation to the revenue. Yeah, a couple of things. And I assume one day, and they did, their revenue knock on your door one day and say, please, Mr. Hook, can I see some invoices? Yeah. They assume nobody was coming. Yeah, and... It would seem what changed things in relation to the HSE is when their funding went up, when they took over this uh, this helpline, their funding went d- basically doubled and then they came under the radar of the HSE. To be fair to the HSE, there are 3,200 charities, 3,200 that get money from the HSE. Now, they simply cannot look under the bonnet of every single one of those. I think they've got 30 people in their auditing department. You'd probably need 100 times that. No, but hold up one now. Fergus Finlay and and many others have made this point about, uh, and I'm not an expert, about how the accounts of charities are prepared. Now you're getting to the nub of the problem. Yeah. Now you're absolutely getting to know because the point I was going to make is the HSE can't look under the bonnet of it. It depends on the independently audited accounts of these charities. Now that begs the question, and it was a question that Shane Ross raised in the Public Accounts Committee when they were dealing with CRC and, and rehab. Who who signed the accounts? Who signs the accounts and who is holding the accountancy firms to account? Now, my understanding, I think that's the job of the of the company's registration office. Um, but is the law being enforced here? No, all so, right, I, one thing I can tell you is that your accounts are audited. And a guy from whoever the firm of accountants comes in and he says at the bottom, and obviously I paraphrase, but at the bottom he says, I confirm that the books of account, I have studied them and they meet with the standards of blah, 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 signed 
Mickey but, Murphy. Yeah. Uh, Smith, and sometimes Smith, you will, sometimes you will get sometimes you will get a qualification in those accounts. For, exa- for example, you you know there needs to be an independent chairman. You don't have an independent. No no suggestion that this happens. But who audits it? Do I I don't know the answer to but actually you seem who audited to know those everything accounts. Else. Well, I mean there is a there is a, obviously a huge question mark about who audited them. And there's I think there's also quest. There's two questions. One is this fina- this charity regulatory authority. It, it has been set up. Apparently, it's doing good work. It doesn't have the powers to investigate under its own volition it can only because p- the opposition are saying they should have been in proactive from the start they can only do so if they get a complaint that their powers need to be strengthened and there obviously needs to be a strengthening of the powers of of auditing and that if if an accountancy firm signs off on counts and they are uh, manifestly then shown to be flawed that the law comes down on them like a ton of bricks. Well, it doesn't. What it does no, it should is, do. It no, should do. but That's what it what does saying. is it just like they, their insurance pays up a certain amount of money that that they're fined or whatever the hell it is. But like they're not disbarred. Well, I was going to say if you if you started taking. Their, their license away to be an auditor yeah. if that's the right term uh, I think it would focus the minds uh, a lot of, of accountancy firms and, and all There firms. are absolute strictures on chartered accountants in relation to tax avoidance absolute it's black and white yeah. and and for for the accountancy firm to fail here I mean they couldn't have missed this in the name no. of God we, we should say George and I think it is important to stress the vast and I, you know, I've been talking to some people in the sector today the vast majority of charities are properly run you don't know that you I, don't I, know we that do, I think we do know no, that no we don't but there are sorry there, no, are, there are clearly how many charities there are, are there examples. in Ireland how well, many I, I, 3,200 you said yeah, who are and you funding. also said that the HSE hasn't enough people to regulate them so you can't say that you don't know well the know. HSE haven't enough to look under the bonnet of everyone so you I don't said. know yeah but what I'm saying is they need to be properly audited I think we can say with some confidence the vast majority but I think we can also say with confidence there are ones out there that are not being properly run we've had unfortunately too many examples of that in recent years alright Shane Coleman News Talks political editor The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7 seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined by Dan O'Brien uh, of independent newspapers where he is a columnist. Uh, I've been trying to get him for five days, but he's the busiest commentator in the business. Uh, Dan, welcome to the programme. And thank you for coming. Um, Are we any clearer? No. So if we're not clearer, right, and uh, everybody is saying hold fast and take stock and don't do anything, which particularly the Irish politicians are saying. Now, I actually don't care whether Corbyn go, comes or goes or Cameron or anything. I'm only interested in Ireland, do you know? So what's your feeling four or five days on how we've handled it? Yeah, I think we've handled it reasonably well. Uh, I think this kind of challenge is one of the things that our system, which does a lot of things badly, actually does quite well. So if you look at the way EU presidencies have been handled over the years, if you look at the way the promissory note was dealt with, those big things that are a set task involve a lot of different people playing a good team game. The Irish system is pretty good at that. So I think it's been reasonably good to date. But the, the you know the issue is almost none of this is within the capacity of an Irish Taoiseach or, or an Irish system to control. There's so little influence we have. There are so many issues and so many actors involved. Well, I was just about to say that. I mean, aren't we, like, just going to have to sit there and wait to see, on one hand, what Britain does, and then, on the other hand, essentially see what Angela Merkel does? Uh, Somebody said to me recently, it doesn't really matter what the president of Estonia or Lithuania thinks. Well, I I, I know people do focus on Merkel a lot, and there's reason for that in the sense that Germany is the biggest country, and she's also by far the most experienced of the main leaders, and she's an effective leader in many ways. But it it does matter. You know, one government won't be able to do everything. Uh, And for smaller countries, the the old Irish expression, he who isn't uh, strong must be smart, it's to intervene at the right time and to use what limited influence you have um, when you can. But, you know, as you say, it's very uncertain. There's a huge range of outcomes here. At one extreme, this could trigger a disintegration of the EU. We could have more referendums elsewhere that are lost. We could be, in two years from now, 
at a position where the euro and the EU itself is in full disintegration mode. I wouldn't rule that out. I'm not well, saying it's going exactly to happen, but I wouldn't the, rule it out. The, the Dutch, who are a bit mm. sort of dodgy on this, aren't they? It, they, they, they're next in line because they have an election coming up. They have, uh, they have an election next year and yeah. so do the French. Yeah. Uh, there's already quite a considerable movement for an in-out <clears throat> vote in those countries as there is in Finland. And if you got into a situation where the parties of government felt they had to offer a referendum. So let, let's take Francois Hollande who's going up uh, probably for a re-election in, in April of next year. That's only 10 months away. Now, if he does go or if there's other you know, centrist candidates and they're having the, the leaders debate with uh, Marine Le Pen the, yeah. the, the, um, of the, the National Front, she is adamant about having a referendum. Now, if it becomes an issue where she keeps saying, I'll give the people a voice and they say, we won't give the people a voice and her support keeps rising, it's very easy to see them saying, OK, to neutralise this issue in the election, we will also commit to having a referendum. So then after the French presidential election in 2017, later that year or into 2018, they have one and they lose it. The last time the, the French had a referendum on the EU, they voted against. So it's, it's, it's conceivable that a disintegration process is now in motion. But on the other hand, at the other extreme, I wouldn't rule out Britain not leaving the EU. I wouldn't rule out the situation in Britain changing hugely in the weeks and months ahead and... Yeah, People. on the British thing, like everybody's making a big deal that there's now four million signatures calling for another run. But like 46 million people voted, so four million people who probably voted to stay in the first place anyway, yep. that's irrelevant. But what about Parliament? Parliament doesn't have to be bound by the referendum, does no, it? No, not so at all. Parliament this is, this is... could say... Something else. Well, it, what what it actually requires is the 1972 Act that brought Britain into the the then EEC needs to be repealed. So you actually need a majority of people in the British Parliament to vote to repeal it. Now that majority is not there, but it may be that people feel compelled after the vote to do that. But we're a very long way from that. Okay, they haven't even pushed the trigger on the mechanism whereby yeah. they start the talks. So. And, you know, from people I've spoken to, it's it's not anticipated that that will be well into the back end of this year. So when they press that button, there's two years to go. So that's, you know, end of 2016, it's, it formally yeah. starts. That's end of 2018. Now, that's two and a half years away. I think there is a huge amount that's going to happen in Britain between potential yeah. Scottish independence, the economy is likely to slow at the very least, could go into recession, um, issues around the complexity of getting getting the deal and the meltdown of both of the big political parties. There has never been a time in Britain where both political parties, or certainly not in modern times, have had leadership vacuums. So you've got a crisis of leadership just at the moment you most need leadership. Yeah. The the issue for Ireland, because it's what scares people listening, right? Because they're worried about the price of their house or they're worried about their jobs, particularly if they're working for exporting companies. Um, all those kind of issues they're, they're worried about. But nobody... I Speaking to somebody in the city of London this morning, they're very calm. That was the thing that surprised me. They are calm. And they're saying, you know... Uh, we've had bad days with the pound before and we've had bad days on the stock exchange and then it starts to move back. It may not come back to the level that it was at, but it will find a level. And then what they're saying is it'll be business as usual. Well, financiers, in my experience, are not very good at predicting what's going to happen in the real economy. Many of them are not even very good at predicting what's going to happen in financial markets. So what financiers, they're very short-term, a lot of them, tend, tend, depends on the type of, of financier, but they, they're often, if they're in the trading game, they tend to be at the end of the day is the yeah, sure. furthest ahead. So I, I really you know, wouldn't give too much credence to what the financiers say. Uh, in terms of what's going on in the real economy, there is almost certain, there's already a slowdown in some parts of the U, UK economy. So in manufacturing and in business investment, they're already, they've already, before the referendum even started, they were already contracting. Now, if that spills over into the consumer side of the economy, and if the business side of the economy, the real economy, takes a bigger shock because of this, it's very easy to see a recession. 
uh, taking place in the UK. So if you had a recession, if you had Scotland leaving, if you had political meltdown in Westminster, uh, if you had the huge complexities of trying to negotiate your way out of the EU and the other European countries not giving you a good deal, that's a huge amount of change and uncertainty for people. Yeah, my guest is Dan O'Brien, columnist, of course, with independent newspapers, but he's also a chief economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs. But Dan, um, interestingly, the, the Mick Barry of the anti-austerity alliance, Deputy Mick Barry came in because Paul Murphy, his colleague, had said on the plinth at Leinster House, you know, a victory for the working man, a revolution for the working man. And then when I asked Deputy Barry, he, he kind of drew back a bit on the revolution for the working man, but, but he did say... What this will mean, there will be job losses forced upon the working man by the deadly capitalists and, and wages will be forced down. Meanwhile, Deputy Healy Ray in Dáil Éireann says there will be an increase in immigration forcing wages down. Now, then Brian Hayes, MEP of Fine Gael, although absolutely opposed to Mick Barry, says yes. Jobs will be lost and wages will come down. This is not good for us. I fully agree. We will lose jobs and and wages will come down. Well, I I certainly, I'm not sure about the wages. Wages are what we economists call very sticky. Even in the recession, uh, they tended to come down by a very, very small amount. I have to say, Professor Barrett of the ESRI made that point yesterday. Okay. So So that seems valid. So the wage issue, I I think... Right, okay. it's, it's more a case, and this is what happened during our huge crash. If you kept your job, you tended to keep your wages more or less stable. If you lost your job, you had no wages at all. And an awful, awful lot of people lost their jobs. Now, if Britain pulls out, one thing we can be pretty certain of is that, that, there, will, that there will be increased barriers to trade between Britain and Ireland. And something economists all agree on is that the more barriers to commercial activity, the less commercial activity. That's within countries and among countries. So there will be new barriers. The question will be, how big will those new barriers? If they're substantial, then there will be a substantial impact on the economy with jobs being lost. Now, there'll be some gains because the higher the barriers are, the more companies in the UK will want to jump those barriers to get into the EU market. So we'll get some jobs. But as I say, the more barriers you have, the less activity you have. Everyone will lose. Yeah, Fergal O'Rourke at, at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, there's an S, um, he said precisely that, that barriers make trade difficult and therefore you have less trade. But the, the, this morning's Telegraph, you know, perhaps not the ideal paper to be reading, but this morning's Telegraph's headline on its front page says that Cameron told the EU president yesterday, you will have to do something about immigration. Now, it is true, is it not, that if they want to be in the single market, he also said, we want to be in the single market. You have immigration if you have the single market. I'm talking about from the, from the countries of the EU. Isn't that so? That's, that's it. Like The EU, since it was established almost 70 years ago, was about four freedoms. The free, free, freedom to move goods, to move services, to move people, and to move money. Those four freedoms. They, they are the four cornerstones yeah. of the single market. Now, if you want to be in the single market, you have to accept that. You can't have the, the, good, the best of both worlds. Yeah. And Britain is not going to get the best of both worlds. The more it wants to curb any one of those four freedoms or more than one of them, the less access it's going to get to the single to market. To the other ones, yeah. And the bigger the barriers that will but go up. But therefore, for us then, yeah. and at Deputy Healy Ray's point, I mean, if you're now in Lithuania and... The border is closed to go to the United Kingdom. The soft border is us. Okay, now, this is an important point. There's something in economics called the lump of labor fallacy. Okay. And that is that there's a lump of people ready to work. And there's only so many jobs. We were told this as kids growing up. There's only so many jobs out there. Study. Actually, that's not true. Okay. It's a supply and demand factor. Now, if Britain shuts itself down to Eastern European migration, there will be less migration. It's just like any kind of commercial activity. The more barriers you have, the less of it is going to be. If Britain shuts down, there isn't a lump of Eastern Europeans there who are desperate to go anywhere. If the opportunity to go to Britain is closed down, there is going to be less movement from east to west. So it's not as though 
all of the million people who were going to go to Britain are going to pile in here. Uh, there could be an increased effect, but I think that'll be very much depend on the state of the economy here rather but, uh, than... Yeah, uh, dealing with you, I have to be very factual because you're a man of great facts, right? So therefore, I hesitate to talk about rumour, but I'm going to talk about rumour. Rumour out of certain quarters of the Dole Bar by certain talkative TDs suggest that the Department of Justice, however, is concerned at the level of illegal immigration into Ireland. In other words, not people from the EU, from people outside the EU, and that will be pressing, in fact, for stricter conditions at the borders anyway. Yeah, okay, that's that's a sort of complicated one in the sense of the border on this island. What happens to the border on this island? Yeah. If they do go, what happens to the common travel area? Now, let's just draw a distinction between free movement of goods and services, okay? Ireland can't have a bilateral deal with Correct. Britain on that. So there's we, we won't, whatever the deal is. Now, th- there's there's more room for wiggle, let's say, on people as to what the arrangement might be between Britain and Ireland uh, on, on movement of people. So that's one that I don't think anyone has the answer for. What, what, what can be said with great certainty is that Ireland won't get a special deal on trade of goods and services. But things, there's more wiggle room in the area of movement of people. But isn't that really the point? We are going over that. I mean, this is this is a perception now, right? Again, rather than reality, right? Because I wasn't in Brussels and I, I can only go by nine o'clock news or, or the daily paper. There is a sense, is there not, that that the Irish sort of game plan is to go over there and sort of say, listen, we're a small little Ireland, give us a break, and we're very pally with the English and we speak the same language and blah, 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 blah. But that's not going to wash. Well, like, you know, those negotiations in Brussels, people tend to put their views. Bigger countries speak more because they have bigger interests and they represent more people. And smaller countries tend to intervene more when it's a specific interest they have. Yes. And as I said earlier, the art of this thing is intervening at the right moment, uh, have a, having a feel for the room, as in any negotiation, any yeah. any club you're involved in, have a feel for the room, have a feel for wait, where things are going and intervene at the right moment and have, have your homework done beforehand, try and have alliances built up with other countries that have similar views. So, you know, it, it, this sort of diplomacy stuff is, is, is pretty right. complicated. Finally, uh, how how long do you live in, in in Britain? Ten years. Right, I lived there for long, not as long as that, but I lived there. I never experienced in that time, apart from you might remember in Bradford, there were issues with the Pakistani mm. population going way back, and there were different isolated incidents, but. I never saw what we have seen the last number of, of days where there are real hate and racism reaction from from people. Like against, for instance, like Polish communities and so on, who've been there since the Second World War. Doesn't that surprise you? Well, I, it does Okay, let, I, again, let's just wait and see just how big a phenomenon this is. Like, okay. I, you know, I don't I, there like were it dozens. When you're factual, there, there were dozens, but but Come like, with me I, here. you know, I, I've always found like I lived there for ten years. I never, on one occasion, had a, had yeah. an anti-Irish sentiment yeah. uh, thrown at me by a cab driver. But that on one single occasion in ten years, vast majority of British people, even people who are uncomfortable with immigration, uh, you know, vast majority yeah. of people who are uncomfortable with immigration are not racists. You know, they're they simply not comfortable, they're yeah. more comfortable in a world where they, they, they have the same points yeah. of reference with everyone. So I, I think the vast majority of British people are moderate, uh, decent people. And I, I, I'd be hesitant to say that Britain is now suddenly taking this terrible sort of 1930s type turn. I think just that might overstate what's going you on. You don't think we're going to be back to... What's his name who led the fascists in 1930? Oswald Mosley, wasn't it? Mosley, yeah. 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 Father of the, or grandfather of the Formula One guy. No, you I don't I, think I, we're no, going there. No, I think there's a risk. I think there's a risk and things can spin out of control. But overall, I think my, my own, one of the reasons I think that they may not exit is that over the next three months, things are a lot of things are going to change politically, constitutionally, economically in Britain. And people may think again, and I think a lot of the big, the okay. moderate majority may swing back towards okay. stay. All right, so put my pension on uh, staying. 
I certainly never give personal financial advice, George. <laughs> the chief economist at the institution uh, at the Institute of International European Affairs, a columnist with independent newspapers, and my favourite factual contributor, Dan O'Brien. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Hook. I'm joined now by Gary Langer, Director of Polling at ABC News. Gary, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Do you Um, have me? Yes, I can. Now tell me, um, how is my man Trump doing in your polls? Well, not terribly well recently. He's had a really rough few weeks, which, as we all know, culminated with his firing his campaign manager. And it's showing up in the data. You know, he's he's trailing Hillary Clinton in, in the head-to-head matchup, but much more important are the underlying sentiments in which many people are questioning uh, Trump's qualifications for office and, and uh, suspect him of bias against minority groups. Uh, these are pretty significant challenges for him. We have to see how he responds. But... What happens in American politics, Gary, and you've been doing presidential elections since whenever, the first thing is less than 50% of people vote. And the second thing is that a lot of people vote the party rather than necessarily vote the candidate, don't they? So Republicans would find it very difficult, for argument's sake, to vote for Hillary Clinton. Oh, no question. I think the, the greater question for Republicans is whether they vote at all. Uh, Trump is an unorthodox and unusual Republican candidate. In our most recent poll, Donald Trump was supported by only 77% of Republicans. It's quite low in-party support. Uh, he, he wants and needs a far higher level of support uh, from those Republicans. For uh, the most, of course, the, the, the question is not whether Republicans will support Hillary Clinton. That seems quite unlikely for most. Uh, but whether they'll vote at all. And uh, that's going to require some persuasion by Trump, given his current numbers. Yeah, but when we think about presidential elections, um, the candidate has a ton of people around him who are all telling him this is where we want to go, and our focus groups have told us this, and our polls have told us that. The firing of the campaign manager by Trump, does that mean he just doesn't pay attention to any advice he's been given? Uh, I don't know. Uh, who, to, to whom and how he pays attention. Uh, I think the, the, the bigger concerns are as follows. Two-thirds of Americans in our most recent survey uh, see, uh, see Trump as unqualified to serve as president. Uh, as many, uh, two-thirds, see him as biased against uh, other groups, such as women, minorities, or Muslims. Uh, and uh, 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 fewer than three in ten are comfortable with the idea of his serving as president. He trails Hillary Clinton by a substantial margin in having the appropriate personality and temperament for the job. We're at a stage right now, George, when people are not so much focused on the issues, certainly not so much making their final choices of whether to vote and for whom, but are are coming to some basic opinions about the candidates in terms of their fundamental acceptability. And that's where Trump has some challenges, and it's essential that he get over it. His his convention, I think, is going to be very important. But, you know, Trump, I assume isn't a stupid man. And I mean, you know, he, he has been dismissed by many as stupid and as a sort of reality television candidate and so on. But he still has essentially nailed down the nomination, which is some achievement. So therefore, one has to think that there's method in his madness. Oh, I, I don't see madness at all. I think he's quite as successful as we can see candidate and 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 uh, canny in 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 uh, political terms. Uh, at the same time, the question is how uh, efficient, efficiently and effectively does he transition from his primary campaign to a general election campaign in which he's talking to more people and different people, if you will. Uh, Donald Trump ran a, a very much of an insurgency campaign in the primaries, capitalizing uh, on what was among a substantial portion of the Republican Party, a strong anti-status quo sentiment, suspicion of outsiders, economic discontent, and uh, uh, an an interest in a populist uh, alternative. 
The question is how well those translate beyond the Republican Party. And that's what we're now measuring and trying to watch. Now, my guest is Gary Langer, the president of Langer Research Associates, who has done these polls for ABC. Trump has tweeted, Gary, he's not impressed. He says the dirty poll done by ABC is a disgrace. Even they admit they polled more Democrats than usual. Ouch. <laughs> Look, the best answer there is the data we're talking about really uh, are far more important. The results then equivalent over a few points in partisan identification. Uh, we have uh, the number of Democrats in our most recent survey is 37 percent. The number of Democrats who voted in the 2000. 12 election was 38%. We have rather somewhat fewer Republicans, and that may be because some Republicans are questioning uh, their party loyalty given the Trump candidacy. Do they come back to the party and, 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 and go to Trump, or, or do they stay away is really the open question of the campaign. But a few points in partisan self-identification doesn't really uh, begin to address the true challenges that Mr. Trump okay. faces. But when, there is, when, yeah. But, when two-thirds of Americans doubt his qualifications for office. All right, okay. Two-thirds of Americans don't think he, he's good enough to be president. But, Gary, there is, there is a phenomenon. Uh, it happened in Ireland. You're looking at the British political scene, more fractured than it's been in the entire history of the United Kingdom uh, in terms of the Tory and Labour parties. You're looking at Spain cannot form a government after two general elections. You're looking at the Scandinavian countries moving sharply to the right. Um, you're, uh, so there is a phenomenon, um, which we don't know what it is, but people are not voting anymore, or they're not at the moment, voting along established lines or the lines the way their parents voted. No question. And I, I would just suggest that we do know what the discontent is. There is substantial discontent with the status quo in the United States and elsewhere. A lot of it is about economic deprivation, uh, the, the, the growing gap between haves and have-nots, flat and even declining incomes among uh, adults, particularly less educated, those who lack college education. Uh, these are serious concerns. The opportunities for economic advancement uh, that many people uh, hope for and indeed expect to receive uh, from their societies are to too many not available. And, and that's created a, a great deal of discontent and ill will. We have indeed seen it expressed in support for the Donald Trump candidacy and on the Democratic side for the Bernie Sanders candidacy. Uh, the, and this strong status quo um, uh, sense of the U.S. electorate, as we see elsewhere, is important. It's not to be minimized, and it is a considerable threat to Hillary Clinton, who's very much a status quo candidate. On the other hand, there are countervailing forces and other concerns that the public has as well, and those do include their assessments of the fundamental yeah. uh, qualifications and acceptability of the candidates. So we have to see where it goes from there. But I certainly don't mean to minimize these factors. They're important. They've gotten Trump where he is. Yeah, and one thing you're sure of as an expert is that we're in June, and it could be very different uh, when we come to November. My guest, Gary Langer there, the president of Langer Research Associates, who does polling for ABC. Your thoughts, of course, on Donald Trump, as always, to 53106, cost 30 cents. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.